Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We do this through reading a chapter in the actual book that we're going through this book series. Then I will share teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you have related to that specific chapter. Each class we will typically cover 10 chapters and today is the last 11 chapters of this book. We actually are covering 11 chapters rather than the normal 10. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, whether you're joining through Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, you're listening to this on the podcast or maybe one of the other replays. Welcome to all of you. If you've never been in this program before, that's completely fine because as I mentioned, we'll be reading the chapters ahead of time as part of this program will actually be reading and then you'll be able to ask any questions related to what we've read, what I've taught and so forth. But those of you guys that have been in the program for a period of time or if you're joining us for the first time and you would like to join us in the future, what you can do is either download these books or download and purchase them or actually purchase them on amazon.com or your country's equivalent and you'll be able to read the chapters ahead of class that way when you come to class you'll be able to come with perhaps questions that you're looking for clarity on so we'll go ahead and get started today normally we do meditation first and then we ease into the actual teaching part but since we're covering you know an extra chapter that we normally wouldn't cover in these chapters some of them are a little bit longer i thought we would skip the meditation today and just go right into actually learning and that'll provide us enough time to be able to read the chapters to teach whatever teachings related to that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have so what i do is i just turn the class over to all of you specifically our moderators our moderator today is Miranda. She's going to be looking at YouTube, Facebook, and Zoom all by herself, as well as uh, guiding the reading. So we'll just kind of go through the class and take our time to ensure that we're able to cover all the questions that you guys might send in through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You would just put those into the comment section. Miranda will see that and be sure that your question gets read during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'm just going to go ahead and switch over to be able to display the chapters and allow Miranda to take it from here. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, chapter 31, even more fruitful than giving. If, householder, one gives alms, rough or excellent, and one gives disrespectfully, gives inconsiderately, does not give with one, one's own hand, gives what would be discarded, gives without a view of future consequences, then wherever the result, 
of that gift is produced for one. One's mind does not incline towards the enjoyment of superb food, nor toward the enjoyment of superb clothing, nor toward the enjoyment of superb vehicles, nor toward the enjoyment of whatever is superb among the five objects of sensual pleasure. Also, one's children and wives, and one's slaves, servants, and workers do not want to listen to one, do not lend an ear, and do not apply their minds to understand. For what reason? Just this is the result of actions that are done disrespectfully. If, householder, one gives alms, whether rough or excellent, and one gives respectfully, gives considerately, gives with one's own hand, gives what would not be discarded, gives with a view of future consequences, then wherever the result of that gift is produced for one, one's mind inclines towards the enjoyment of superb food, toward the enjoyment of superb clothing, toward the enjoyment of superb vehicles, toward the enjoyments of whatever is superb among the five objects of sensual pleasure. Also, one's children and wives, and one's slaves, servants, and workers want to listen to one, lend an ear, and apply their minds to understand. For what reason? Just this is the result of actions that are done respectfully. In the past, householder, there was a Brahmin named Balama. He gave such a great alms offering as this. One, 84,000 golden bowls filled with silver. Two, 84,000 silver bowls filled with gold. Three, 84,000 bronze bowls filled with bullion. Four, 84,000 elephants with golden ornaments, golden banners, covered with nets of gold thread. Five, 84,000 chariots with upholstery of lion skins, tiger skins, leopard skins, and saffron dyed blankets with golden ornaments, golden banners, covered with nets of gold thread. Six, 84,000 milk cows with jute tethers and bronze pails. Seven, 84,000 maidens adorned with jeweled earrings. Eight, 84,000 couches spread with rugs, blankets, and covers with excellent coverings of antelope hide, with canopies and red bolsters at both ends. Nine, 84,000 coatings of cloth made of fine linen, fine silk, fine wool, and fine cotton. How much more of food and drink, snacks, meals, refreshments, and beverages? It seemed to be flowing like rivers. You might think, householder, he was someone else, the Brahma Valana, who on that occasion gave that great alms offering but you should not look at it in such a way. I myself was the Brahmin Balama, who on that occasion gave that great alms offering. Now, householder, at that alms offering, there was no one worthy of offerings, no one who purified the offering. Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Balama gave would it be to feed one person accomplished in view. Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Balama gave and feeding a hundred persons accomplished in view, would it be to feed the once return? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Balama gave, and feeding a hundred once returners, would it be to feed one non-returner? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Balama gave, and feeding a hundred non-returners, would it be to feed one arhant? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Balama gave, and feeding a hundred arahants, would it be to feed one Pachakabuddha? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering of that Brahman Falama gave, 
and feeding a hundred Pakechabudas, would it be to feed the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one? Would it be to feed the community of monks headed by the Buddha? Would it be to build a dwelling dedicated to the community of the four quarters? Would it be for one with a mind of confidence to go for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community? Would it be for one with a mind of confidence to undertake the fine training precepts, to abstain from the destruction of life, to abstain from taking what is not given, to abstain from sexual misconduct, to abstain from false speech, to abstain from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. As great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful if one would develop a mind of loving kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. As great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful if one would develop perception of impermanence for just the time of a finger snap. All right. Thank you, Miranda. There's a few different things going on in this teaching, and uh, I'll cover all of these for you. Here, of course, the Buddha is talking about generosity and practicing generosity. And as I've taught in the group learning program, the practice of generosity is to train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and specifically to eliminate selfishness. Because in the unenlightened state, we tend to hold on to things, pursuing our own selfish desires, and we're only interested in doing something if there's some benefit for us. And in order to get to enlightenment, we need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment by training the mind to let go, which is what breathing mindfulness meditation does, but also generosity does that as well. And it also helps to train the mind to eliminate selfishness so that you're not just looking out for yourself and that you're only doing things that are beneficial to yourself, but you're willing to do things for others without any interest in anything in return. This is what it means to practice generosity. And a lot of the generosity in the Buddhist tradition is practiced towards ordained practitioners, towards teachers and guides who are sharing the teachings. But also this practice of generosity can be done amongst other practitioners, amongst villagers and community members, neighbors, people that you're spending time with. So generosity would be your time, effort, energy, or resources. So here the Buddha is talking about someone who kind of doesn't really give with thoughtfulness. In this first paragraph, he talks about someone who's kind of disrespectful, who doesn't really give and practice by giving with their own hand and has these other you know, pollutions in the way that they're actually practicing generosity. And they're saying, he's saying, you know, if somebody practices generosity in this way, then they're going to experience where their children, their wives, their employees essentially aren't going to want to listen to this person, not lend an air, and they don't apply their minds to understand this person because this person is inconsiderate. This person is giving gifts in an inconsiderate way. And it's not just that they're giving gifts in an inconsiderate way, but in other parts of their life, they're also inconsiderate. So they would be treating their children, their life partners, their wives, their employees in ways that are inconsiderate. And therefore, the natural law of gamma is that because this person is being inconsiderate, then people aren't going to be interested in being involved with this person and creating benefit for them. So that's what he's saying in the first part of this. The second part is just the opposite. He's talking about somebody who gives considerately, someone who does put thought behind their gifts and what they're offering in terms of generosity. And because of that, once again, not only are they thoughtful in the way that they provide gifts, but they're also thoughtful in their relationships. So the Buddha is saying here 
that children, wives, and employees essentially are willing to listen to this person, lend an ear, and apply their minds, not because of the gift that they're giving. There's not a connection like that, but it's more about the mindset of the individual, that if they're giving and practicing generosity in thoughtful ways, then they're going to be thoughtful in their relationships as well. Then the Buddha goes on to talk about this enormous offering that this Brahmin made and this just enormous offering during that time frame. Even today, this would be an enormous offering. 84,000 golden bowls of silver and 84,000 silver bowls of gold. And you heard Miranda read through all these different things. This is just an enormous, enormous offering. And then the Buddha says, you know, he was the person who made this offering. And it was an offering that he made in a past life, of course, because he's saying that in that past life, he was this Brahmin that made this particular offering. And he's saying this enormous, enormous, enormous offering essentially doesn't amount to the benefit that one would receive, ultimately by the time he gets to the end, that one would receive if they just practiced loving kindness for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. An udder is like the nipple of a cow to milk a cow. Because people during the Buddha's lifetime would understand that that's a split second. It just takes a split second to pull the udder of a cow. So because of that, the Buddha is basically saying all this enormous offering, if you as an individual practitioner would just practice loving kindness and develop the perception of impermanence, understanding impermanence, just for this time of a finger snap. So this is way more fruitful, the Buddha saying, than making that enormous offering. And he goes through other successive individuals that someone might make an offering to. When he talks about someone accomplished in view, what he's talking about there is a stream enter, because a stream enter would be accomplished in view. And then he says a once returner, a non-returner, and an arahant. These are the four stages of enlightenment. And then there's this, I don't even know how to pronounce it, a Pakya Buddha. This is someone who attains enlightenment on their own, but then when they're a self-awakened, they don't actually share the teachings that they actually came to awakening. The difference between that person and an actual fully perfectly enlightened one who's a Tathagata, a Buddha, is someone who awakens on their own, self-awakened, and then shares the teachings in a way that guides countless people to enlightenment during their lifetime and then after their death. So there's this other type of Buddha, which I've never encountered. I've never heard of one. I've never met one. So I don't know that this type of person exists today. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he's talking about this Pekia Buddha, someone who essentially has awakened in their own independent journey without the help of any teachers, but yet they don't have the ability and the capability to share the teachings and guide countless people to enlightenment. They just awaken on their own and then basically just live their life where a fully perfectly enlightened one, a Tathagata Gautama Buddha, he awoken on his own, but yet then he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing the teachings and he had the capability to share the teachings in a way that he guided countless people to enlightenment during his lifetime. And his teachings were preserved in a way that after his death, they continued to help people get to enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying that that enormous offering, it would be more beneficial to make you know an offering to just one of these individuals, a 
stream enter, a once returner, a non returner, an arahant, a pekia Buddha, and of course a tathagata, a fully perfectly enlightened one, making an offering to that person is enormously beneficial. And where the benefit comes in is not that there's going to be this mystical, magical thing that happens that when you give an offering that magically you're going to become wealthy and rich. That's not how this works. What the Buddha is actually pointing to here is that in order for you to make an offering to a Buddha or for you to make an offering to an Arahant, an enlightened being, you're going to need to come in contact with that person and make that offering, which means you get to ask that person questions to improve your understanding of these teachings, to gain more wisdom in order to allow you to get more and more liberated on the path. So there's no mystical, magical thing here that when you make an offering, you know, poof, a genie comes out and says, you know, what's your wish? How can I help you? It's more about you coming in contact with these different beings who have increasingly higher and higher degrees of wisdom. And by you accomplishing that, where you're making an offering to a stream enterer, a once returner, a non-returner, an arahant, a pakya Buddha, or an actual perfectly enlightened one day Buddha, this is where now you have the opportunity to gain insight and wisdom about these teachings so that you can get further liberated in your own mind. That's the benefit that you're actually experiencing. And of course, you're getting the benefit of practicing generosity and eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and eliminating selfishness. But the Buddha is saying all of that is not as fruitful as being able to practice loving kindness and develop the perception of impermanence because that's what's going to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, developing the perception of impermanence and developing a mind of loving kindness is going to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will. That's that second poison out of the three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance. This is what keeps an unenlightened being in the unenlightened state. It's when you transform these to generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom that then the mind moves to enlightenment and experiences the enlightened mental state. So that's why practicing loving kindness and developing this perception of impermanence, even for a finger snap or the pull of a cow's udder, is highly fruitful and beneficial that the Buddha is explaining even more so than that enormous offering that he gave in a previous life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it appears we don't have any questions right now, sir. All right. We'll go ahead and move on to chapter 32 then. Okay. Um, let's go to Jan to read this chapter. Thank you, Miranda. A great gift. Monks here, a noble disciple, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. He himself, in turn, enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. This is the first gift, a great gift, highest of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which is not being tainted and which will not be tainted, not refused by wise ascetics and Brahmins. This is the stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly ripening peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. 
The other four precepts, which are abstaining from taking what is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from lying, and abstaining from consuming substances that caused heedlessness are repeated with the Buddha's guidance. There are monks, these five gifts, great gifts, highest of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which are not being tainted and will not be tainted, not refused by wise ascetics and Brahmins. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, the Buddha is once again talking about giving and generosity and gifts, but he kind of turns this around a bit. Rather than talking about giving our time, effort, energy, and resources, he's talking about giving this gift of elimination of fear and hostility and harm. And the way that we give that gift to other beings is through our own practice. By us choosing to practice the five precepts, which is what this one is guiding us on, is ensuring that we're looking at those and practicing those well, that we give this gift to other beings of freedom from fear, hostility, and harm by not destroying life or taking life. And that is going to be very beneficial to those beings. It's also going to be very beneficial to our life as well. So that's why the Buddha says that it essentially is the nutriment of peacefulness. What that means is that's essentially like a building block or that's what feeds peacefulness is by practicing this particular precept. And he talks about all the other precepts in a similar way. You know, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and abstaining from substances that cause heedlessness. That by us practicing these, we give other beings this freedom from fear, from hostility, and harm. Because when we steal, we're actually harming other beings. When we have sexual misconduct, we're harming other beings. When we're lying, we're harming other beings. When we have substances that cause heedlessness, we're oftentimes harming other beings. When the mind is heedless, then we do things that are not very wholesome. So by us practicing these five precepts and developing our moral conduct, cleaning up our own decisions about our moral conduct related to the five precepts, then we give this really wonderful gift to other beings. And I think this is a very nice way to help you see how, yes, this practice is all about you and developing your own mind and developing your practice of these teachings. But by you doing that, not only is it helping you, it's helping those close to you and it's helping all of humanity. This is something that I oftentimes share with students. So think about that as you're working on cleaning up your own practice, that this practice and this development of your life practice, it isn't about going out and changing other people and fixing other people. It's about fixing your own mind and your own decisions. And by you doing that, that's going to really help a whole lot of other beings as well as yourself. So what questions do you guys have on this? Uh, Jan has her hand raised, so let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I'd like to get some guidance in thinking about lying. Um, so I want to share something that happened to me in the past. Um, when my mother was dying, um, my sister uh, came to the hospital. I was taking care of my mother um, at the hospital before that at the hospital. and. Uh, my mother told me that she didn't want my sister to take care of her. So my mother confided in me that she did not want my sister there caring for her. Um, and so I was in this difficult position of explaining 
to my sister that she shouldn't stay in the hospital. She could visit my mother, but shouldn't stay in the hospital. Um, and I didn't tell her, I didn't feel that it was beneficial to my sister or anyone to tell her that our mother doesn't want you there. But I felt like I was telling my sister an untruth at the same time. And it's been troubling me ever since. I don't know if I'm being clear. You know, so I felt like I was not telling the truth to my sister, but I, I chose not to do that because I thought it would be more harmful for her to hear the truth. And I, I don't know if I did the right thing. You know, if I was ever in that situation again, I wouldn't know what to do. So I, I don't know if you could offer some guidance about that. Sure. Every situation's different. And you have to kind of evaluate what's going on at the time and make the best decision for the situation. But as long as you didn't say an overt lie, like if she said, you know, why is it that I can't be at the hospital? And you said, oh, because the doctor doesn't want you here. Right. That would be an overt lie. That would be what a lie is. But if you just left that information out and just said, you know, sister, I would like for you to not be here. It's probably best that you stay at home or however you handled that then you weren't actually lying. You were just choosing to address the situation through language that would be wholesome and helpful and beneficial. The Buddha talks in other parts of his teachings about not only the five factors of well-spoken speech, which is speaking at the right time, what we say is true, we speak gentle, we speak beneficial and with a mind of loving kindness, but he also talks about speech that is agreeable and disagreeable to others This is a teaching that you haven't probably seen yet, Jan, because it's in, I think it's volume three. And if you would like to see it, I'll I'll look it up for you and you can get it after class. Just send me a a message. But he he deepens his understanding or he deepens his teaching about the right speech, that it's not only these five factors of well-spoken speech, but it's knowing essentially what kind of speech and what kind of information is going to be disagreeable to someone else. And he says in this situations, he doesn't speak it or he knows the right time to speak it. So that would probably be really helpful for you to see that level of detail about speech, because as long as you weren't telling an overt lie, then you were just addressing the situation through language that would be agreeable and acceptable to this other being because you have compassion for this other being and you have compassion for your mom. You weren't interested in a conflict at her end of life. Then it sounds like everything was just fine, but I think it would probably help you to explore this other teaching. If you'd like to send me a little message, I'll look it up and be sure you get access to it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll do that after class. That That is helpful. What I said to my sister is you've had a long trip, you're tired, why don't you go home and rest and come back in the morning and we can spend the day with our mom. So, but I, my sister is still mad at me about this. My sister feels that I didn't let her spend time with our mother. <laughs> and it, I feel uncomfortable about it. Did your mom die in the meantime and she wasn't able to spend time with? No, no. Um, this happened about a, a week before um, she died. And did your sister ultimately get to spend some time with your mother before death? She did. She did. Okay, so it all worked out regardless. So this is just your sister holding on to her own craving and clinging because she ultimately got to spend time with your mom prior to death. So you weren't standing in the way. You know that. 
you spoke what you spoke. You can't control whether another person gets angry about things that happen in their life because they're causing their own anger. You were doing what you felt was best based mm -hmm. on your mom's communication to you. And based on what you just said that you shared that, you know, you traveled a long way. I think you should go home and get some rest. I think that's an excellent way to handle a situation like this where you're not allowing the confrontation to explode into a problem. And this fits perfectly with right speech. Any kind of anger or hostility that your sister's holding on to, that's her practice and that's her craving and clinging that you're not responsible for that. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. There's no harm in saying to somebody, you know, you drove a long way. I think you should go home and get some rest because she always had the option to say, no, I would like to go see mom. And then at that point, you'd be like, okay, well, there you go. You know, I can't, you can't stop another adult human being from going in to see their mom in the hospital. So she had that option to say that. So what you said was a statement of loving kindness and compassion. And however, she took that is, you know, up to her and the way that she's choosing to hold on to that in her own mind. So I don't see any issues with that whatsoever. That doesn't seem we have any other questions right now, sir. All right, so we'll go on to the next chapter, 33. To be reborn graceful, rich, and influential. Malika, some woman is not prone to anger or often intense frustration. Even if she is criticized a lot, she does not lose her temper and become irritated, hostile, and stubborn. She does not display anger, hatred, and bitterness. And she gives things to ascetics and brahmins, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. And she is without jealousy, one who does not have jealousy, resent, or feel bitter about the gain, honor, respect, admiration, appreciation, and gratitude given to others. When she passes away from that state, if she comes back to this world, Wherever she is reborn, she is beautiful, attractive, and graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion, rich, with great wealth and property, and influential. All right. The Buddha here is essentially giving us qualities of practice that are very helpful for our practice. He ultimately talks about somebody who's being reborn in a better place and the benefits of having practice in this life, what it's going to create in the next life. Remember to never look at the Buddhist teachings in isolation because the goal isn't to be reborn. The goal is to attain enlightenment and escape the whole cycle of rebirth. But of course, if somebody doesn't get to that goal and they fall short, then the next question is, well, what happens? Well, of course, we're reborn. And then when we're reborn, we are reborn into a certain realm or certain situation based on decisions we made in this life. So the Buddha here is talking about someone who isn't prone to anger isn't often intensely frustrated. Even when someone is criticized, she doesn't lose her temper and become irritated, hostile, and stubborn. She doesn't display anger, hatred, and bitterness. These are all things that you can look at and be like, okay, that's what I would like to work on. Of course, you're not necessarily interested in being doing this out of a desire to be reborn in a heavenly realm or a better condition in a next human birth, you're interested in getting to liberation. But the same teachings that lead to liberation, falling short of that, leads to an improved rebirth if we are reborn in a future life. So the way that I suggest that you 
look at teachings like this is not that you're necessarily aspiring for a particular rebirth to be beautiful, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion, rich, and of great wealth and property and influential. That's not what you're necessarily aspiring for. It shouldn't be. It should be that you're looking to attain enlightenment. And how do you do that? Well, the Buddha gives that throughout his entire path. And in this particular discourse, he's talking about the certain mental qualities but then he's also talking about certain gifts, that by giving gifts, that this actually improves our ability to have a better rebirth, but also it leads to enlightenment in this life. It's not that you give a gift and you're going to get enlightenment. It's that by practicing generosity, you work on eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And that's what ultimately leads to the diminishing of discontentedness and the attainment of enlightenment is the diminishing and elimination of craving, desire, attachment. There's also teachings here where the Buddha talks about somebody without jealousy. The antidote to jealousy is sympathetic joy. This is part of the Brahma Viharas that we talk about in the group learning program. If a mind has jealousy, then there's craving, desire, attachment there. That's what's producing it. Of course, the antidote is to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, and then you arise this sympathetic joy where you have joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So the Buddha is talking about that here, that if somebody else is having gain, honor, respect, admiration, appreciation, and gratitude to others, that you don't have jealousy or resentment or feel bitter about other people receiving this respect and admiration. That's really important. And as I mentioned, you know, here the Buddhist finishes out with talking about rebirth into the human realm and coming back to be beautiful, attractive, graceful, all these other qualities. That is what would happen if you needed to be reborn and you were practicing these qualities of mind that he shared. But that's not what you're interested in. You're not interested in or shouldn't be interested in rebirth. You should be interested in getting to Arahant, full liberation of mind, where there's no discontentedness whatsoever. And in order to accomplish that, it would require, among other things, the same exact qualities that the Buddha is talking about here. Not being prone to anger and frustration, so forth and so on. Providing gifts to aesthetics and Brahmin and then also not having jealousy when others are having admiration and respect. Questions on this chapter? There doesn't appear to be any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 34. Okay, let's go to Jan to read chapter 34. Thank you, Miranda. One who respectfully gives timely food. Monks, when a donor gives food, he gives the recipients four things. What for? He gives life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. Having given life, he receives of life, whether heavenly or human. Having given beauty, he receives of beauty, whether heavenly or human. Having given peacefulness, he receives of peacefulness, whether heavenly or human. Having given strength, he receives of strength, whether heavenly or human. Monks, when a donor gives food, he gives the recipients these four things. One who respectfully gives timely food to those mentally disciplined ones who eat what others give, provides them with four things, life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. The man who gives life and beauty, who gives peacefulness and strength, 
will obtain long life and fame wherever he is reborn. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha is talking about this natural law of gamma. That's what he's always talking about, essentially, when you see his teachings. It's always this cause and effect or this action and result, the results of our decisions. And here, once again, he's talking about generosity and giving food, providing this, of course, to ordained practitioners, aesthetics, Brahmin, people who are sharing these teachings into the world, explaining how through your offering of food, you're giving life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. And that because of that, that's what you receive in either the heavenly realm or in this human realm as a result of you giving these gifts. And here it's interesting to note that the Buddha talks here, one who gives, one who respectfully gives, right? It's not just, you know, here you go, take some food. The Buddha's always qualifying the way that we give is doing that respectfully. And he's also qualifying who we actually give to. That if you can imagine during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were just thousands and thousands of ordained practitioners as there are today. And he never taught to just give without thought. He always taught to use discernment or wise decision making. Because when we give to mentally disciplined ones, these are teachers and people who are sharing these teachings into the world where their mind is restrained, they have deep wisdom, they're practicing the teachings. By making offerings to these people, we ensure that their practice continues and they're able to bring the teachings into the world more and more. Whereas if we are giving gifts to people who are maybe sharing these teachings, either as an ordained practitioner or household practitioner, and they're into unwholesome things, then we're supporting that through our offering. So the Buddha always talked about providing offering to virtuous practitioners, or here he used mentally disciplined ones. Because in order to have mental discipline, somebody would need to have developed wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline as part of the Eightfold Path. And by sharing your offering with people who have mental discipline and they're sharing these teachings, then that allows them to continue their practice. These teachings come into the world more and more, more and more practitioners can learn these teachings and now that individual those close to them and all of humanity just gradually improves as one person's mind decide to practice and they become more and more liberated as part of that so what questions do you guys have on this chapter sir this is about giving food but when people give ordained practitioners other gifts like robes or I don't know the technical name for it, the fan that they use during their services when they're reciting Buddhist teachings. Does that have different um, effects for the donor or the same? Different. Here the Buddha is talking specifically about food, but when we give clothing, you know, we're giving a different object and there's something different that we're giving, so therefore there's a different result as part of it. And there's parts of the Buddhist teachings where you can see him talk about different gifts and what we're giving. And as you saw in the previous chapters, one of the best things we can give anybody is to practice the five precepts. But here also giving food and other gifts, we're also giving certain things to an individual that allows them to continue their practice. Because anybody who's sharing these teachings into the world should just be living a basic life. You know, they shouldn't be you know, driving an expensive car, wearing expensive jewelry, wearing expensive clothes. 
In fact, I'm aware of a story during the lifetime of the Buddha that someone gave him a very rich and luxurious piece of fabric in order to make a robe during his lifetime. And he handed it off to one of the ordained practitioners and told him to go shred it into shreds and then sew it back together and make a robe out of it for somebody else because he wasn't interested in wearing this luxurious fabric that was given to him that he had them rip it up and sew it back together. Of course, he gracefully accepted the offering and then later was when he asked this to be done. So there's various offerings and various benefits associated with those offerings and the people who are receiving these offerings should be living a very basic life just based on the the things that we need to sustain our life which is food water clothing shelter and medical care these are the only five things essentially that we need to sustain our life and that's what a practitioner who's sharing these teachings would need in order to continue to share the teachings because it's a more than full-time job to share these teachings into the world and people who have stepped away from any kind of aspirations for a career They are more than willing to share these teachings into the world, but they still need to be supported in some way. So they give the teachings as part of their generosity, and then their students will support them with various offerings. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was mainly, you know, food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. That's all that was really given. He wouldn't allow people to have money and wealth during his lifetime because they didn't really need it. Nowadays, we do offer to teachers and ordained practitioners a bit of money because it just makes it easier for them because of transportation, getting on buses or planes, or if they need to purchase some incidental things, they have a little bit of money to take care of those things. Where during the Buddha's lifetime, you know, buses and planes and things like that didn't exist. They just went everywhere walking. So they just needed the basic supplies to sustain their life. Thank you, sir. Uh, It appears there are no more questions at this time. All right, we'll go on to chapter 35. The entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. And how, Ananda, does a monk who has a wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path? Here, Ananda, a monk develops right view, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. He develops right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which is based upon seclusion, freedom freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. It is in this way, Ananda, that a monk who has a wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path. By the following method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship, by relying upon me as a wholesome friend. Ananda, beings subject to birth are freed from birth. Beings subject to aging are freed from aging. Beings subject to illness are freed from illness. Beings subject to death are freed from death. Beings subject to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair are free from sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. By this method, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. All right. Thank you, Miranda. 
This is a really important teaching to understand because as we go through life and we make decisions about who to involve in our life, having people that are into wholesome things is going to ensure that you're moving in the direction of wholesomeness. Whereas if we hold on to relationships of the past, that there's a lot of darkness, a lot of unwholesomeness, then it's going to drag us into that because we're our mind's going to have a tendency to lean in that direction. And oftentimes what we need to do is we need to let go of relationships that we may have had in the past in order to move on. It doesn't mean that we're judging those people or looking down on those people or anything like that, but it's all about wise decision making. And when we observe the relationships that we have, what the Buddha is explaining is that by having wholesome friends and wholesome associates, that this is going to help you to develop the Eightfold Path because you'll be more readily able to develop these teachings and practice these teachings when you're around people who are into wholesomeness. Where if you're around people that are into unwholesomeness, then your mind's going to have a tendency to lean in that direction. So we can make wise choices about our new friends and people that we choose to interact with now, but there's maybe certain people in your life that you've been friends with that are into unwholesome things and the relationship is really struggling and it might just make sense to let that go and move on. Again, not out of judgment, not that you're looking down on this person or you think that you're better than them, but choosing for your own loving kindness for this being who you are, choosing with compassion, concern for your own misfortune or also this loving kindness of this genuine interest in seeing yourself be well, you can also have those same qualities for anybody that you choose to move on from. You can choose that I'm going to move on from this relationship, but still maintain loving kindness and compassion for this person, but not necessarily maintain the relationship and just know that it's best to move on. And the Buddha is saying that this is essentially the whole holy life, because no matter how much work that you're doing on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and all these other teachings, if we surround ourselves with a bunch of unwholesomeness, it's going to be hard for you to ascend beyond that. If you remember the lotus flower that I talk about in the group learning program as a symbol of enlightenment, the lotus flower has its roots deep down into the murkiness of a pond. And then as it develops its, its roots and its stalk, it rises up through the murky water and it gets really high above the water and it blooms into this beautiful flower. Well, in order to do that and accomplish that, you have to rise above the murkiness and the dirtiness the pollution of the world. The more you learn these teachings, the more you understand discontentedness, you're going to see that a vast majority of the world is really stuck and tightly stuck in discontentedness. And they're causing it themselves and they just don't realize it because they don't have the wisdom to understand that. And as long as our mind is holding on to certain unwholesome relationships, then we can't rise above that murkiness of the pond and bloom like a lotus flower. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, Jan has her hand raised, so let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, would, would you suggest extending this to include the kinds of books that we read, the kinds of perhaps entertainment that we, um, you know, programs we might watch, uh, movies and so forth, um, you know, environments beyond people. Would it be wise to watch, uh, you know, what we're exposing ourselves in these other ways too? 
Absolutely. That's really wise because if we're exposing the mind to unwholesome media and input, which didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha, other than what he talked about is fairs and beautiful people singing. This was kind of like the most that they had during his lifetime. They didn't have the multimedia things that we have today. But he talked about kind of avoiding participating in the things that they had during his lifetime, which is related to the unwholesomeness that we can see in certain media and photos and images that can arise things like central desire or ill will or other things like this in the mind. The more of that unwholesomeness that you're putting in, your mind's feeding off of that stuff. So if you adjust what you're putting into the mind in terms of music or television content, movies, books, things like this, and you look for wholesome things, then that's going to feed the mind and nourish the mind in ways that this unwholesomeness isn't going to do. So when you're doing all this work on this path and you're reading all these books about Buddhism and the words of the Buddha, you're attending classes, you're meditating, you're really nurturing the mind and feeding it all this healthy input through developing your practice along this path. And the more conscious you are about the decisions of media that you put in, the better. And by going through all this work that you're doing in order to get to enlightenment, you will probably naturally get to a point where if you have any unwholesome media that's coming in, that you'll probably purge that from your practice and choose to no longer do that. Because on one side, you're putting in all this time, effort, energy, and resources to develop your practice and move towards wholesomeness. But if on the other side, you're putting in all this unwholesome stuff, it's like, you know, off balance. It's not allowing you to continue to ascend to more and more wholesomeness. So that would be a very wise decision for you to make. And it's not related specifically to this teaching, but there's other teachings that the Buddha shares along those lines in terms of Mm -hmm. ensuring that we're participating in activities and events that are wholesome rather than unwholesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Teacher David, there can be times when, while a practitioner is deepening their practice and they are developing these wholesome friendships and companionships and letting go of past relationships that are unwholesome, that there may be an attachment from that other person where they become angry about the friendship ending. How do you think that a practitioner would be best to deal with those types of situations? Because of what we know about the unenlightened mind and someone who's doing unwholesome things, we know that they're unenlightened. It craves permanence. You know, it wants to hold on to this person and you might be choosing to move on from a relationship. And the best way to ease that for the other being is to do that gradually without them even necessarily realizing what you're doing is that you might have made the conscious choice to distance yourself from this person and move on from the relationship. And if you can do that gradually, where like, say you're living with the person full time, maybe you've made the conscious choice that you're going to end this relationship, but you just haven't told this person. The best thing you can do is like start spending a day or two away where you go maybe stay at a girlfriend's house, your parents' house, you know, maybe go stay somewhere else for a couple of days, then come back with that person, then go away for a few days and come back go away for a few days and come back. But even still with that and doing that gradually over time, allowing their mind to gradually release, even with that, somebody who's off the path and doesn't understand craving, desire, attachment, their mind can still be heavily 
attached and holding on. There's people that haven't seen each other for five years and the mind's still attached to that person from five or 10 years ago. But this is a way to kind of ease out of the relationship is by introducing this impermanence and coming back and forth multiple times and kind of getting that person used to you not being around anymore. But even with that, like I said, with somebody who's not on the path, their mind is still holding on because they're not practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. They're not practicing generosity. They're not training their mind to let go of craving because they still have that ignorance or unknowing of true reality, not even realizing that that's a problem for them. So that's about the best thing that you can do for somebody. But in certain situations, even that's not going to provide much relief for them because their mind is more heavily polluted and defiled with these craving, anger, and ignorance. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, appears there are no more questions right now. All right. So we go to 36. Okay, let's go to Jan. Thank you, Miranda. The cycle of rebirth without discoverable beginnings for beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. And Ian is long, monk. It is not easy to count it and say it is so many years or so many hundreds of years or so many thousands of years or so many hundreds of thousands of years. Suppose, monk, there was a great stone mountain, a yojana long, a yojana wide and a yojana high without holes or crevices, one solid mass of rock. At the end of every hundred years, a man would stroke it once with a piece of Cassian cloth. That great stone mountain might by this effort be worn away and eliminated, but the eon would still not have come to an end, so long as an eon monk. And of eons of such length, we have wandered through so many eons, so many hundreds of eons, so many thousands of eons, so many hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because, monk, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering unhindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. All right. Thank you, Jan. Here, the Buddha is talking about the cycle of rebirth and being able to discover when it started, because this is a common question that people oftentimes ask, like, you know, when did the beginning of the world start or when did the beginning of the cycle of rebirth start? And the Buddha is saying it's undiscoverable. You can't discover when things actually started because it's so long and to be able to go back and actually discover the beginning of the world or the beginning of this cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable. And he gives this analogy of this mountain and wearing it away with a piece of fabric, you know, swiping it once every hundred years. And he's saying, you know, after you get down essentially 12 to 15 kilometers of wearing that away, the eon would still be going on. And he talks about how we've been roaming and wandering in this cycle of rebirth for many eons. And if you think about what we know about the world right now, the best estimate of scientists is that this planet is about 4.5 billion years old. Now we think about Gautama Buddha's life 
he lived 2,500 years ago. And we think that that's just an enormous amount of time ago because, you know, here we are living this life of about 80 to 100 years. And we just feel like, wow, this is such a long time. So 2,500 years ago was surely an enormous amount of time. Well, think about 4.5 billion years, not million, but billion. That's just an enormous amount. And that's just the best estimate based on current research and current understanding. So when the Buddha's teaching here about these long eons, which he didn't know about the modern scientific research that we're doing today, he had knowledge well beyond anybody at that time because what he's describing is what scientists have confirmed for us today that you know this planet at a minimum goes back to 4.5 billion years and he's saying that we've all kind of roamed and wandered in this cycle of rebirth having countless existences over multiple eons and it would be impossible for us to discover the beginning of this and he's saying that you know essentially here what we should be working towards is the elimination of discontentedness, elimination of these strong feelings, liberating the mind to enlightenment. That's the real goal of any being that is on this path is to get to enlightenment where the mind no longer experiences discontent feelings and it's permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because who wants to continue in this continuous cycles of rebirth? While there are certain enjoyable things about life, We've all experienced a certain amount of misery and grief and despair and displeasure. And that can be motivation for you to say, I'm not interested in coming back to this place ever again. But yet you've been doing that. We've all been doing that multiple, multiple, multiple times, countless times over these multiple eons now in this human birth. And now that you're understanding the Buddhist teachings, you have a real opportunity to get to complete liberation and stop this whole cycle of rebirth so that you won't experience these strong feelings for the rest of this life, but also there won't be rebirth for any future lives either. Questions on this chapter? Uh, yes, sir. Even if science is able to eventually pinpoint exactly how old Earth is and when biological life began on Earth, when the Buddha has talked about the uh, contracting and expanding the cosmos before and about celestial beings um, and formless realms. I think it's DM 27 where he said that either all or most of the beings were um, formless beings. Does that mean that even if we eventually know when physical life begin, began on Earth, that the cycle of rebirth could have been going on before that? Yes, he's saying that it's undiscoverable. In fact, not only is he saying it's undiscoverable, the way that I also practice this is why even concern ourselves with it? Because <laughs> even if we found out that it was the cycle of rebirth or the, the Earth was exactly a pinpointed time, okay, that's nice information, but yet now the mind is still discontent the goal is to get to elimination of discontentedness. So yes, I agree with what you're saying is that it's the cycle of rebirth could have started long before the beginning of the planet. The beginning of this planet doesn't necessarily mean the beginning of the cycle of rebirth. Those things aren't necessarily connected, but also you can take that a step further and say, you know, even if we did find out the exact date of when 
any of these things occurred, it really doesn't lead to any type of ability for you to eliminate discontentedness and get further liberated. So when the Buddha says this, that the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable, what this did for me was, all right, stop worrying about that stuff. Stop even thinking about that stuff. Because oftentimes we put a lot of effort and energy behind trying to understand the past or thinking about the future that the mind isn't in the present moment working on eliminating discontentedness now. So when the Buddha is sharing that the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable, that means you can leave all of that to the side because it doesn't really, it isn't really needed in order to get to liberation and the elimination of discontentedness. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear that there are any more questions right now. All right. Chapter 37. The stream of shed tears in this cycle of rebirth is more than the water in the four great oceans. Good, good, monks. It is good that you understand the teachings taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, monks, you have experienced the death of a mother, as you have experienced this, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. The stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, monks, you have experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, the death of a daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, lost through illness, as you have experienced this, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the, the agreeable. The stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing true reality, and fettered by craving. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. All right. Thank you. So what I do when I've read these chapters is I read it and then I take it in and I close the eyes and I envision the amount of water that's on this earth. If you've ever seen a globe or if you've ever been on the water in a boat and you've seen the amount of water that's on the earth, the Buddha is using this to help us understand the voluminous tears that we've shed in all of our previous existences. And this is essentially sharing with you that you've just had countless, countless, countless existences prior to this one. And this is because we've been roaming and wandering through this cycle of rebirth, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. It's ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that is the primary problem that keeps the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. And it's that acquiring of wisdom and the independent verification of the teachings of the Buddha that allows you to acquire that wisdom, that helps you to antidote or transform that ignorance to wisdom. And now one of the first things that you learn about in terms of gaining wisdom in the path to enlightenment is that it's craving desire attachment that's causing the mind to be discontent. So that's why he says, you know, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. 
that the fetter is this ball and chain that's keeping you trapped in the cycle of rebirth. It's a pollution or a taint of mind. And that's one of the first things that we learn. And that's what's causing the mind to be shaken up and discontent. So the Buddha is here sharing that we've had so many relatives in our life that we've lost and that we've lost this wealth and we've had illness and all these other things that we've cried so many tears that it's more volume than all the water and all the seas, essentially. And rather than just read through this and be like, hmm, that's an interesting story, I suggest that you just sit with it and close your eyes and just imagine the massive amount of water and that you've cried that many tears as part of all these different existences. And that helps you to see and understand these countless existences that we've had in the past. Questions on this chapter? There doesn't appear to be any questions at this time, sir. All right. We'll move on to chapter 38. Okay, let's go to Jan for chapter 38. Thank you, Miranda. Having experienced the same thing in this long course, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering, unhindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. Whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. It is not easy, monks, to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering, unhindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, there's a couple of things to talk about, even though it's a fairly short excerpt from the discourse. Uh, of course, the Buddha is talking about that the cycle of rebirth doesn't have a discoverable beginning, but then he talks about how any beings that we observe that's having misfortune or misery, we can understand that we experience those same things at some point in either this life or previous lives. And this can help you to develop your loving kindness and compassion for other beings. This loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing others be well. Compassion is a concern for the misfortune of others. So when you see people that are having misfortune, rather than judge them or measure or compare, look down on them with conceit and arrogance, instead have concern for their misfortune because that individual was once you. So if you walk down the street and you see somebody that doesn't have food, they're in dirty clothes, they're maybe homeless, don't have shelter, you have experienced that at some point as well. And you can then have this compassion and make your decisions about that situation through that compassion. And then likewise, if you see somebody who's happy or fortunate, maybe they're better off than you in terms of their position at work or their amount of wealth or anything like this, you can also conclude that you've experienced that at some point as well. This can help you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. If you really wish and 
desire a certain car or a certain house or a certain lifestyle or a certain job, you can just understand that you've already done that at some point in the past. So you can let that go rather than continuing to chase after it, thinking that that's going to actually help you in some way or another. The next part here, the Buddha is talking about beings that we see and we observe in this life. We can conclude that they have previously been our mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter. This is really helpful to also develop loving kindness and compassion here. That if you treat other people as if they are one of your relatives, and I don't know necessarily what your relationship is with these various relatives, but if you think about the most wholesome relationship you could have with any of your relatives and think about that you would like to have that same level of wholesomeness with other people around you. So when you go out to a restaurant and you have a waiter or waitress, a food server helping you, think of them as your mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter. Or you have a taxi driver or you are in a mall shopping and there's somebody that bumps into you and drops their bags. Think of this person as a relative. And then your intention, speech, and actions and the way you choose to practice these teachings can be from a position of everybody in this world is a relative of mine. And it's interesting that here where I live in Chiang Mai, the language and the way that the local people practice is we practice in such a way that we actually refer to each other as brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, things like this. So when I go outside, I can go into a restaurant and I might be calling the food server my older brother or my younger sister or my mother or my grandmother or my grandfather, depending on their age, I'm going to use the age appropriate term and I'm going to talk with that person as if they are my mother or my father. And we do this with everybody that we interact with here in Chiang Mai. And even though it might be strange if you start calling people in your community your mother and father because that's not how people tend to practice in your area, you can at least think that way when you're interacting with people that these people are your relatives and this will promote in your own mind a improved practice of right intention, right speech, and right action as you interact in the world. And then I'd like to share this here with you, even though it was in previous chapters, I would like to just break it down for you a little bit. The Buddha is explaining here, it is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions. What he's explaining here is conditioned objects, impermanent objects. He's saying essentially that we need to liberate ourselves from clinging and craving for these conditioned objects because that's what's going to cause discontentedness. So a conditioned object is something that arises, that changes, and fades away. And what happens in the unenlightened mind, because it lacks wisdom, is it doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So it tries to hold on and grasp and cling to all of these conditioned objects around us. And when the mind's holding on to these things, then it experiences discontentedness as a result. And what the Buddha is explaining here is to eliminate that, eliminate the clinging and holding on to these conditioned objects. And he's saying that's essentially what is going to lead to your liberation is by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, this clinging, this grasping, these expectations, these wants of holding on to things permanently. Questions on this chapter?
Uh, doesn't look like we have any questions right now, sir. All right. Move to Chapter 36. Uh, in the agreeable and pleasurable world, this craving arises and establishes itself. The eye in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there is this craving arises and establishes. The eye in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there, this craving comes to be abandoned. There, its elimination comes about. Forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness, eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact, feeling born of eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact. The perception of forms, of sounds, of odors, of flavors, of physical objects, of mental objects. Volition, choices and decisions. In regard to forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects. Thinking of forms, sounds, flavors, odors, physical objects, mental objects. Pondering on forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. The craving for forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects, for each of the above. In the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there is there this craving arises and establishes itself. In the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving comes to be abandoned. There its elimination comes about. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Here, this was chapter 39, and the Buddha is starting to discuss the six sense bases, which is actually the next book that we're going to be moving into, volume nine. And these six sense bases are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These are the five normal sense bases that we think about that you might have learned in school. But then there's the sixth one, which is the mind. And this is where the body and the mind are going to essentially have this. Well, the mind has this central desire, but it's coming from the mind through these sense bases, which is part of the body. And when the mind has these agreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects, it's going to have craving. It's going to long for things from the mind through these sense bases and what it's craving and what it's looking for to experience pleasant feelings is these six things here so while the eyes ears nose tongue body and mind are the six sense bases these are what we call the internal sense bases the external sense bases are forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. So the mind is doing this, that it's longing and yearning through these sense bases. When we talk about the Four Noble Truths in the group learning program, we just talk about craving, desire, attachment is what causes discontentedness because that's what you get started with is the Four Noble Truths. But the Buddha has this layering effect that he pulls back more and more layers to expose more and more of the path to enlightenment. And here, 
and also in the next book that we're going to be studying, he's pulling back this layer of central desire really deeply for you and starting to expose you to that craving desire attachment that he's talking about in the Four Noble Truths and that causes discontentedness. The deeper understanding is that what the mind is craving, desiring, attaching is it's craving and desiring, attaching these forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects through these sense spaces of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And the way that this happens is through awareness. When the mind has this contact through the sense spaces with any of those external sense spaces of forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, or mental objects, the mind then becomes aware of them. That's what this consciousness is. And that consciousness, awareness, is going to now continue to feed this craving because the mind starts to make decisions, which the Buddha gets to down here. The mind starts making decisions to start longing and yearning for these things because the mind starts gradually developing this craving because it starts making these decisions. It has this thinking, this pondering, and now this craving, this mental longing and yearning starts to get developed in the mind. And then this is where the mind then craves for everything to be agreeable and pleasurable. The mind is uncomfortable when things are disagreeable. When you experience disagreeable contact through these six sense bases, that's when painful feelings arise. When you experience agreeable contact through these six sense bases, that's when pleasant feelings arise. So because the mind craves for permanent pleasure, it's going to constantly crave for agreeable contact through these six sense bases. And then when something disagreeable occurs, that's when the painful feelings comes, that's when the anger comes, that's when the unskillful speech and actions come and we start causing harm in the world. So the Buddha is starting to discuss this and essentially saying that the goal here is to abandon this, abandon central desire, abandon this constant craving for permanent pleasure through craving agreeable and pleasurable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical contact with the body, and mental objects. That's how you work towards eliminating sensual desire. It starts with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. That's what trains the mind to generally let go of all of the things that it's craving with sensual desire. But then there's also very specific things that you can be doing for certain craving desire attachments that you have. So you have this generalized training of breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity that you're practicing on an ongoing daily basis. But then as you're aware of certain cravings that come up in the mind, there's ways to directly address those. And I talk about it in the group learning program through identifying your attachments and then putting a plan in place to actually eliminate them gradually and slowly so that you can get to the elimination of central desire because you would need to eliminate central desire to get to the third stage of enlightenment and ultimately moving on to the fourth stage. Questions here on this chapter? Uh, yes, sir. Jan has her hand raised, so let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, teacher David. 
Um, it's just a, a short question. I was reading more about dependent origination, and it seems to me that I'm recognizing a lot of the this kind of cycle of dependent origination here. Am I right about that, or am I thinking wrongly about that? The Buddha does mention the six sense bases and dependent origination. He mentions contact. He mentions consciousness and things like that. So dependent origination is what we call the ultimate truth. This is the highest teaching of the Buddha that explains why we experience discontentedness and why we experience constant rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. So everything that the Buddha taught in one way or another goes back to this dependent origination because it's the highest ultimate truth. So whether it's the three poisons, whether it's the even the five precepts, the Eightfold Path, the six sense bases, everything connects back to that because it's the highest truth. So you'll start seeing those connections by learning these other teachings. By the time you understand dependent origination, it all starts to connect. So you learn these more detailed teachings of, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Universal Truths, the Eightfold Path, all of these things are kind of like the beginning of your journey with this path to enlightenment. And then ultimately, before you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you would need to start understanding dependent origination. And that's where you start seeing these connections that you're seeing, Jan. So that's good that you're seeing the connections and just know that everything connects back to that in one way or another, because the goal of this path is to eliminate discontentedness and eliminate the cycle of rebirth. And it's dependent origination that explains to you why we experience discontentedness in a much more detailed fashion than the Four Noble Truths. And it also explains why we experience the cycle of rebirth. All the other teachings that the Buddha is explaining is helping us to eliminate all of that. And then it's the dependent origination that's showing us why it's actually occurring. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Uh, It looks like there are no more questions for right now, sir. All right. You guys are so polite. Chapter 40. Yes, let's go to Jan for chapter 40. Thank you, Miranda. Transcending physical pain by avoiding mental pain. Monks, the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The instructed noble disciple, too, feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Therein, monks, what is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling? Venerable sir, our teachings are rooted in the perfectly enlightened one, guided by the perfectly enlightened one, taken refuge in the perfectly enlightened one. It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one would clear up the meaning of this statement Having heard it from him, the monks will remember it. Then listen and attend closely, monks. I will speak. Yes, venerable sir, the monks replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this. Monks, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and has displeasure. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterward with a second dart, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, 
He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, he has aversion towards it. When he has aversion towards painful feelings, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings lies behind this. Being contacted by a painful feeling, he, seems, he seeks excitement and sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feelings other than sensual pleasure. When he seeks excitement and sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings lies behind this. He does not understand, as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. When he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing of true reality, in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings lies behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it attached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it attached. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it attached. This monk is called an uninstructed worldling who is attached to birth, aging, and death, who is attached to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is attached to discontentedness, I say. Monks, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve, or have displeasure. He does not weep, beating his breast and becoming distraught. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, but they would not strike him immediately afterward with a second dart, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by one dart only. So too, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, he has no aversion towards it. Since he has no aversion towards painful feelings, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings does not lie behind this. Being contacted by a painful feeling, he does not seek excitement and sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from painful feelings other than, than sensual pleasure. Since he does not seek excitement and sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. He understands as it really is the cause and the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. Since he understands these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing of true reality in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels neither a painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. This monk is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging, and death, who is detached from sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is detached from discontentedness, I say. This monk is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. The wise one, learned, does not feel the pleasant and painful mental feeling. This is the great difference between the wise one and the worldling. 
for the learned one who has comprehended the teachings, who clearly sees this world and the next. Desirable things do not provoke his mind. Towards the undesired, he has no aversion. For him, the attraction and repulsion no longer exist. Both have been extinguished, brought to an end. Having known the dust-free, sorrowless state, the transcender of existence rightly understands. All right. Thank you, Jan. This is a really in-depth chapter that really goes into detail about how to transcend physical pain by avoiding mental pain. But there's some other real takeaways in here that will actually help you get to enlightenment if you understand them. Of course, I've discussed pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings at multiple times in the group learning program and in this program as well. So you should have an understanding of what those are. Those are conditioned feelings. That's the mind basing its inner feelings on some condition and there's this pleasant feeling that arises, but that's temporary like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. Then because that's temporary, the mind often moves to painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. And then there's these neither painful nor pleasant feelings like unsatisfactoriness or displeasure or shyness would be an example of one of those. So what the Buddha is explaining here is that the uninstructed worldling, which means somebody who's not learning his teaching, someone who's attached to the world and holding on to so many things about the world, they're going to experience these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The instructed noble disciple too feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and neither painful nor pleasant. So this is someone who's under training, but they're not yet enlightened. That's what a noble disciple is, someone who is deeply learning and deeply practicing. So that person's still going to experience this discontentedness that we call it. But they're going to experience it in different ways as it relates to physical pain. And the Buddha explains the reason why here. Essentially, the uninstructed worldling, all they understand is this person who isn't under training, is that when they're experiencing pain and painful feelings, all they know as a way to escape that is to now grasp and crave these pleasant feelings. This is why if somebody's had an argument with their life partner, they will then crave having a beer or whiskey or gambling or maybe having sexual misconduct outside the relationship, or any number of different things that the mind might crave. There can even be wholesome things that someone might do when you get into an argument. Because when you get into an argument and you're arguing, you will have those painful feelings. And then if you're uninstructed and you don't know what the Buddha is explaining here, you're going to observe that your mind then craves for something. And it can move in the direction of gardening, for example. And then you might want to have this urge to go garden or something like that. But it's still a problem. Even though there's no problem with gardening, the real problem is the craving, desire, attachment, that the mind's longing and yearning for these pleasant feelings. And the only way that it knows to get out of these painful feelings is to now long for these pleasant feelings. And then it goes towards conditioned pleasant feelings. And it doesn't actually solve the true problem. And the Buddha explains this as somebody who's getting hit with two darts. They get hit with the first dart of painful physical pain. And then there's this mental anguish, which is the second dart. 
But this not only happens with physical pain, it also happens with mental painful feelings. Like I mentioned, if you have an argument or if you're experiencing any kind of painful feelings, maybe if somebody dies that's close to you and you feel pain, this is where someone might turn to alcohol or some other type of thing as a way of chasing after the pleasant feelings because the uninstructed worldling, someone who's not on the path to enlightenment and have the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, doesn't understand that this is what the mind's doing. And this is where we can have a lot of destructive behaviors and destructive decisions. Now, what the Buddha is explaining that the instructed noble disciple does is that when that person, again, they're not enlightened, but when they experience painful feelings, they know that they're experiencing painful feelings because of craving, desire, attachment. Therefore, their mind doesn't grasp for the pleasant feelings. They don't chase after that because they know that that's the problem. Instead, they work on eliminating the craving, desire, attachment that's led to those painful feelings. And the Buddha is explaining this through physical pain, saying that where the uninstructed worldling has this physical pain that gets experienced by this first start, then they experience this mental anguish because of the craving for pleasant feelings. It intensifies the pain because the mind is now craving pleasant feelings. So when you experience that physical pain as an uninstructed worldling, then the mind's grasping for these pleasant feelings and there's this mental anguish that arises in the mind, intensifying the pain and having even more painful feelings. But the instructed noble disciple, someone who's learning really deeply, when they experience that physical pain or that any kind of painful feelings, they know what's happening is it's craving, desire, attachment. So they're not going to grasp for these pleasant feelings because that's part of the problem. So the Buddha is saying you're just experiencing the physical pain. You're not experiencing the mental anguish along with it. This is where I've talked in previous classes that an enlightened being or someone close to enlightenment is going to experience pain very differently than you did when you're off this path. Where when you're off this path and you experience physical pain, you might have this sorrow and grief and displeasure because the mind doesn't understand that this physical pain is impermanent. The person might even fear death, depending on what the physical pain is. But for someone who's deeply trained in these teachings and their mind is getting closer and closer to liberation, when they're experiencing physical pain, they know that it's impermanent. And they know that allowing the mind to grasp for these pleasant feelings doesn't actually solve the problem. It actually makes the problem worse. So that person is going to just observe the physical pain, know that it's there, but it's going to be very muted comparative to where that person would have experienced that same experience before they learned the teachings. So you have this different relationship with something like physical pain when your mind is more trained and you'll see that the physical pain won't be as intense. You're always going to have physical pain even as an enlightened being because that physical pain is there to tell you that something's wrong in the physical body and that you need to take corrective action to fix that. But an enlightened being isn't going to feel the level of intensity of physical pain that an uninstructed human being is going to experience because that person doesn't understand craving, desire, attachment is the problem, and they're still grasping for pleasant feelings. So you might observe this as your mind's becoming more and more liberated. If you stump your toe or you hit your hand with a hammer or something falls on your head or your body, where in the past you might have gotten really angry, really frustrated. You know, you might have blown 
up with a lot of anger and rage where now when those things happen, same exact thing can happen. You feel the physical pain and you know you've got to take corrective action, but you don't feel the mental pain, the mental anguish because your mind isn't grasping for these pleasant feelings. So therefore, the mind can reside more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But it's not 100% peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because in this particular description and discourse, this individual isn't enlightened that the Buddha is talking about. But as an enlightened being, even if you fall down and hurt yourself, you can be practicing such that the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy no matter what type of physical pain that you experience. You're not joyful because of the physical pain. You're joyful despite it because you understand and acknowledge that it's impermanent and you don't allow it to shake up the mind. That's the part about physical pain. But where you can also use this teaching is that as you're making your way to enlightenment and you're still experiencing painful feelings, you're going to observe that your mind is going to want to grasp for these pleasant feelings and you've got to cut that off and let that go that as soon as you're experiencing the painful feelings you might be sitting with pain you might be having a breakup in a relationship maybe your car got in an accident maybe you got some bad news from a family member or something like this and you feel this painful feelings arise well you can hopefully cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation but if that doesn't happen and it comes into feelings in the mind You might observe at some point when you're dealing with that discontentedness that the mind wants to long and yearn for pleasant feelings because it wants to get rid of these painful feelings and the way that it's choosing to do that is through grasping for something to arise pleasant feelings. But you're not interested in the mind doing that because that's part of the problem. So where you see the mind grasping, having this craving, desire, attachment, longing, and yearning, trying to chase after pleasant feelings, cut that off. Sometimes you have to really sit with the painful feelings, understand them enough so that you can eliminate whatever craving, desire, attachment calls those painful feelings. That's what will eliminate the painful feelings. If you're experiencing painful feelings and you overlook that and you immediately long and crave for pleasant feelings, then you're kind of going two steps away and you're getting deeper into the problem. So rather than allow the mind to chase after something new to arise pleasant feelings, sit with the painful feelings, observe what's causing that, eliminate the craving, desire, attachments that caused it, and now your mind can move closer to liberation and closer to enlightenment because you're eliminating the condition that caused those painful feelings to begin with. Craving pleasant feelings isn't going to permanently eliminate the discontentedness. It's not going to permanently eliminate the painful feelings. It's actually part of the problem. So understanding that, observing that, and then taking corrective action when you see the mind longing for the pleasant feelings is really going to help you to move the mind closer to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, It doesn't appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. We'll move on to the last chapter for today, which is chapter 41. And this is the Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path, the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness? It is just this Noble Eightfold Path, namely, 
right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And what monks is right view? It is monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. And what monks is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness, this monks is called right intention. And what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech, this is called right speech. And what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct, this is called right action. And what monks is right livelihood? Here monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. And what monks is right effort? Here monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil or unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. And what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk residing, reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware, mindful, having, putting, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on mind as mind dedicated, clearly aware, mindful, having put aside the craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. And what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. And with the subsiding of thinking and pondering by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. And with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. And that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is the core and central teaching of the Buddha. 
the Eightfold Path. Everything connects into this. And this is kind of a certain layer of details of the Eightfold Path and then his other teachings deepen this for you more and more. This is the path to enlightenment. Anybody who's interested in attaining enlightenment through the Buddhist teachings would need to learn this inside and out, backwards and forwards, like it's the back of your hand. And I teach this in a lot of detail in the group learning program because that's where students are starting out. And then in this program, you'll see this particular chapter show up a few times in the various volumes. And what I do is I just open up to any questions that you guys might have because typically by the time students get into this program, they've already taken the group learning program at least once, if not more. So you would have already heard me teach this in detail in that program. So let me see what questions you guys have about any aspects of the Eightfold Path, any clarification that you would like to glean in terms of what the Buddha taught as each one of these steps. Um, Jen has her hand raised, so let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I'm not sure if I understand renunciation. I, my simple understanding of renunciation is that it's wanting to give up the things that are inhibiting you from attaining enlightenment. Is, would that be a fair way to, to describe this? Yes, and we can talk about it in more detail too. Here in the second step, it's translated as right intention. Some people translate it as right thinking or right thought. This is the thinking and the thoughts of the mind or the intention. And this is at the very beginning of the path because anybody who's coming into the path to enlightenment and coming from somewhere else, either never having studied the Buddhist teachings or even having studied the Buddhist teachings in the past, their mind still is not yet enlightened. And that means that their mind is holding on to certain ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And in order for somebody to get liberated and to enlightenment, they would have to have this intention of renunciation or relinquishment or willingness to let go, to let go of false beliefs and things that the mind is hindered by. There's so many things that the mind is hindered by. When you saw the Buddha talking about being hindered by ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, this is countless things for someone who's just coming to this path. So if you entered into this path with the intention of holding on to things and everything I know is the truth and I'm just you know, learning this to try to confirm that what I know is already the truth, that person's not going to get to liberation because the reason why their mind's experiencing discontentedness is because their mind is holding on. And that's part of that craving, desire, attachment. So we need to have this intention or this thinking or this thought, this willingness to let go or renunciation or relinquishment. I was talking about this today with a student here in Chiang Mai. We were talking about in the past, about during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were these Brahmin and the common person would go and pay the Brahmin money to pray on their behalf. And that person would then go home and their life was supposed to become better as a way of paying this fee for this service and then their life was going to get better and the buddha sharing his teachings about the natural law of gamma that this isn't how someone's life gets better it's through gaining wisdom and making wise decisions and then we experience wholesome results so that person 2500 years ago who has the belief that they can go and pay this brahmin money to pray on their behalf and go home and their life gets better they would have to have the intention of renunciation. 
the willingness to let go of that because that is hindering their ability to create an improved life because their mind falsely believes that they can just pay someone money and their life is going to become better. And there's countless things like this that an unenlightened mind is holding on to that if it continues to hold on to them, it won't get to liberation. So there has to be this intention of renunciation or this willingness to let go. That's what that one means. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Another way to think about this, Jan, is you know having an open mind and, and not holding on to anything. It's just having an open mind about the teachings that you're learning about the Buddhist path and not holding on to the things of the past. Uh, it doesn't appear there are any more questions right now, sir. All right. Well, that's the last chapter for this particular book. We're going to be moving into the next book, which is volume nine, which you can download from our website or you can order it online or you can take it and go get it printed if you'd like with the file that you download. So you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the button to download volume nine. And we're going to focus on chapters one through 10 next week. This is the volume related to the six sense bases. This is where you're going to deeply understand central desire and how the mind longs through these six sense bases. This is a really big, important one in order to get to liberation, that without understanding of the six sense bases and what's causing these discontent feelings to arise through longing and yearning through these six sense bases, you wouldn't be able to actually get to liberation. So here you're going to get to learn that as part of volume nine as we explore all the way through all the chapters, but for next week, it's just going to be chapters one through 10. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in part two of our three-part series. Our three-part series is about the Eightfold Path. We're diving into each section of the Eightfold Path separately so that we can penetrate into the teachings of the Buddha. So last week we did the first part of that three-part series, which is all around wisdom, which is right view and right intention. Tomorrow we're going to be discussing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This makes up the moral conduct. And then next Sunday, we're going to be in the mental discipline, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that last chapter that we read today, I'm going through in detail on Sunday and teaching that piece by piece by piece. So you can learn that live through the class when we teach here in Zoom or we live stream. It's the exact same time just tomorrow on Sunday. Or you can watch it on the replay if you can't make the live class. You can watch it through Facebook, YouTube, or listen on our podcast. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in the second part of our four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. Breathing mindfulness meditation is so important. It's a primary practice in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. We've just recently restarted our group learning program. So we're starting from the very beginning and kind of building practitioners up little by little and helping them to build a foundation on this path to enlightenment over a seven month program. So you're welcome to either learn through the replays and do this in your own pace and as your own independent journey and reach out for questions through posting in Facebook, through asking questions in online classes, through sending a private message or scheduling personal guidance sessions, you're welcome to do all of that because as we progress through this seven-month program, you're going to get this really solid foundation to be able to then bring your practice up closer and closer to this eightfold path that's going to eliminate discontentedness. 
And if you practice in the way that the Buddha teaches, you'll notice this gradual diminishing of discontentedness as the mind is moving closer and closer to enlightenment. Things that once caused anger will create irritation or annoyance, and then eventually that same thing will occur and the mind will just be utterly peaceful, no longer being shaken up by this impermanence because the craving for permanence has been eliminated for that particular situation. So thank you all for joining today. Thank you for those of you that read chapters. Thank you, Miranda, for moderating. You did an outstanding job. I appreciate all your efforts. I'll see you guys in a future class, either next Saturday or perhaps Sunday and or Wednesday in the group learning program. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadiha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.